This episode of the Mitchell Fawn and Jeremy White Show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups. That's right. Pariah Pickups have been powering my guitars since the Pound Cake Pickups came out. If you're a guitar player and you're looking to recreate that Van Halen sort of 90s DiMarzio kind of thing, and you can't really afford to get those crazy prices that the DiMarzio Pickups go for online, well, the Pariah Pound Cakes do such an incredible job of recreating that tone. Use the promo code Jeremy at checkout for some instant savings. PariahPickups.com. That's pariahpickups.com. Use the promo code Jeremy at checkout for instant savings. Let's get right over to this week's episode. Mike Reno from Loverboy. You can watch the entire interview on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Make sure you like and subscribe. Go watch it. But now you got it on demand right now. Enjoy. An all new episode of the Mitch Lafon and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. You are currently speaking to one of the greatest singers in Canadian history. Oh, I know. And Mike Reno's here too. <laughs> well, hey now, hey, hey now. Look, let's get right into it. Live on Unzoomed, kicking off big tour alongside Sticks and Ario Speedwagon. Loverboy is going to be hitting the road, kicking off Grand Rapids on May 31st, all the way through St. Louis, Tinsley Park, Illinois, uh, making stops in Clarkson, Cincinnati, uh, Kansas City, Tampa, West Palm Beach, pretty much all the big cities across the U.S. and A. Welcome to the show, an absolutely iconic Canuck, Mr. Mike. Mike Reno from Loverboy, everybody. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? We're good. good. Doing great. It's so great to, to talk to you. You know, the, the last time that I saw Loverboy was in Saint-Ia, Saint-Quebec a couple of years ago. And you were just phenomenal. I mean, you've always just been phenomenal. So, oh, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, I do work at it. And I am a little nervous about jumping in and doing 45 shows this summer with this touring uh, carnival of greatest hits. It's going to be amazing. It, it is absolutely yeah. going to be amazing. And we have two great Canadians on there. Don't forget, we've got Gowan on that bill too, right? I mean, Lawrence is going to be there. So yes, yeah, Lawrence Gowan, good guy, great friend. I can't wait to see him. Yep. Last time I saw Loverboy, actually, I was 16 years old, and I was working local crew on my native reservation. You guys came play here in Gahnawage. It was like a one-off show. And I got to be Paul Dean's assistant uh, guitar tech for basically the day. So that was a lot of fun. And it was the yeah. one time I ever got to see Loverboy. So I'm absolutely going to try and catch one of these shows this year. Yeah. So where was that? What, what, what part of the world was that? Quebec. It was, yeah, it was just outside of Montreal on a native reservation just across the water in a town called Gahnawage. And you guys played a place called Maddie's Place, which isn't there anymore. Actually, the owner just passed away a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it was uh, it was a fantastic show that night. I mean, uh, it was just, just really great. And the cool thing about Loverboy is that, like, you know, the live mix can make a really great band sound awful. And... The live mix that night was so good. It sounded like the record. Like, it was just so, like, so that's always been in my mind. Like, man, Loverboy just sounds great live, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's get on to this, let's get on to this new uh, release called Release. Uh, it is a single for now. Is there more coming down the pike? Does this lead to an album or a greatest hits with a couple of bonus tracks? What is the plan for new music with release and what's coming next? Well, we're doing singles right now. Okay. Actually, we can't even be in the same room together, really. You know, for a little while, it's been a little nutty, as you know. Right. So what we did is we had to record this one all uh, uh, through the internet. Like Paul and I got together and wrote the song, sang the song, but we sent it off to Doug, our keyboardist. He did the keyboards, and we sent it off to uh, Maddie, our drummer in uh, North Carolina. He 
eat Tonala drums on. We sent it to Winnipeg. I mean, this has been a, a round the horn type thing. But going in the studio is something I'm looking forward to. What I'd like to do is get these guys together back in a little mountain sound where we cut a lot of our great albums. Yeah. And I'd like to get all five of us in the room with a really good engineer and a producer and just kick some butt. I'm looking forward to it. But, you know, we got to wait till this till everything calms down a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's funny you talk about Little Mountain Studio, and I was just saying how great you guys sound live. I mean, it starts with the songs, and even going back to those records you did with Bruce Ferburn and Little Mountain Studios, I mean, those records just sound so good. Yeah. They, actually, they still sound good. It's, that, I yes. was quite surprised. I heard one the other day when I was driving around, and I, I said, man, it still sounds good on the radio. So we really had a good bunch of guys right off the bat. I mean, we were pretty fortunate to have Bruce Fairburn and, and Bob Rock and not to mention Mike Fraser. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. Was an engineer. Now he's, now he's recording and mixing ACDC albums. I think he's done the last six ACDC albums. Something you like know that. He second engineer on a Loverboy album to, to doing six ACDC albums. I mean, and then, you know, Bob Rock, of course, is just fantastic. He's, he's done everybody, you know, from, Metallica to Buble, you know, like and everybody in between. Sadly, Bruce Fairburn passed away a few yep. years back. He's terribly missed. He would have probably gone on to done, done even more great records for sure. Yeah. Right, I'd, talk I'd... to me quickly about that Canadian sound, because when we look back to, to the 80s, you know, we do think of Brian Adams and we do think of Loverboy and Honeymoon Suite and all that. But what we sometimes forget is how important Vancouver and the sound was bringing in ACDC, bringing in Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, Scorpions. Uh, talk to me about that scene with Bruce and Bob and Little Mountain. And it was it was like a team, right? And Jim Valance, can't forget Jim. You know, I tell you what, it actually started with the group Prism. Do you yep. remember? Yeah, Jim Valance was drummer for Prism. He was the drummer and he wrote, wrote all the songs and co-produced it with Bruce, with Bruce Fairburn. Um, back then, I think he was using the name Rodney Higgs. So it was a little, uh, you know, a little bit of a, yeah. Anyways, and if you really listen to that album, that, that was done in Little Mountain too. That was probably the first album done there. Shortly, shortly after that album, we got Fairburn and Bob Rock and Mike Frazier together with our band. I mean, we were so lucky to have that. It was, and they were basically kind of starting their careers. It was, right. it was really at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So we all kind of rode up the, the totem pole together. It was, it, we've all, every time we see each other, we have a, a, a really good mutual, uh, you know, love for each other. And it's great to see guys, you know, yeah. uh, you know, after all these years, cause they've done so well and we've done very well. And it's just been a really great ride. I, I got to tell you, it was pretty special back then. I mean, we, we, I would be hanging in the studio and, and the guys in Motley Crue would be on the other side or Aerosmith would be on the other side or Trooper would be on one side, I'd be on the other side. I remember um, helping out with some of the vocals on Aerosmith albums and yep. Bon Jovi albums. And they just said, can you just come in and go, whoa, <laughs> you know? Right. I go, and then it turns out it's living on a prayer, you know? Right. So I, so well, just all, you never knew. I mean, I don't think a lot of people give you guys the credit because in reality, had you guys not made those records with Bruce and really created that innovative sound that kind of sculpted the tone of the 80s. I mean, you listen to that, the cowbell and then that first cannonball snare. I mean, that basically created the template for all the records that Bruce and Bob did going forward. I mean, you wouldn't have the the Little Mountain uh, loading bay drum sound had you guys not done that record, you know? 
I was just gonna, I was just gonna mention that loading bay. You know what they? A lot of I don't know if a lot of people know this, but what they ended up doing there was a, a loading bay where you load all the equipment in the back, and it was just a big, maybe three story high, really two story wide, empty place where you back the truck in and load stuff up. Well, they put speakers out there and ran the sound of the drums through the speakers and then re-recorded the room. And that created that big sound. And it, was, it wasn't it was like an electronic sound. It was a natural sound. It yeah. was organic. And I think uh, people started coming from all around. I remember Aerosmith came up, the crew came. Uh, uh, it's just insane. I, it, it, there's people all over the place. Like, from all over the country and in Europe as well. They came to, to use that studio and hopefully, I mean, by the time we did our second record, we couldn't even get a hold of uh, Bruce Fairburn and, and, and Bob Rock because they were busy. They, were, they, were busy. <laughs> they stopped taking your call. They're like, no, 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 we don't, we don't talk yeah, to no, but, but talk to me about that because their talent gave you a sound, but at the same time, you having great songs gave them a reputation. So it was a two-way street where if your record had stiffed, nobody would care to go work with Bruce and Jim and all those people. But at the same time, the sound on the record was so good. So talk to me about how they sort of helped you, but at the same time, you helped them by just being so good. Well, it, it's probably true. Uh, you know, Bruce Fairburn did a cool thing when he was producing. He was, um, in my opinion, he was he was... Uh, in tune enough or, or smart enough to just let us play. So some bands don't do it that way. <clears throat> Pardon me. Some bands have to record and then just do it singly and then put everything on singly. Our band really recorded uh, basically live. I remember Mike Fraser would set up the microphones on the instruments. We'd sound check for about three days and then we would just start playing and they just record everything. And a lot of times that's, that was the end of it. That sounded great. Next song, let's go. And we recorded fast and we recorded together and Fairburn could see that that was good for us. I mean, some bands don't do it that way, but we yeah. did it that way. He noticed it. He kept it going. And I think it's important that you figure out what your band's good at, no matter who you're producing. And, I, and he was very good at that. And of course, twisting the knobs, you can't get much better than Bob Rock. Yeah. And I mean, the sounds of those records, like I said, I mean, there would be no slippery when wet or pump loving an elevator with those drum sounds and all that. I mean, the, the, those Loverboy records, they, they really did create the template, in my opinion. So You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I, no, you, that's a nice thing you said. I appreciate it. Thank you. Talking about some incredible producers and songwriters, I mean, you know, Bruce and Bob and Mike, obviously fantastic. But, you know, one of your one of my favorite songs for you guys, Loving Every Minute of It, that was written by Mutt Lang. And I've always been curious, how come Mutt didn't work in the, in the studio and produce that song with you guys? Well, I think he was a little busy doing some some unknown band called, um, let me think, Death Bird. <laughs> no, and you know what happened is, um, at the time, Brian Adams was working with Mutt Lang and they were writing and doing stuff together. Do you remember that period? And during that, also that time, we we were using uh, Bruce Allen as our manager, so was Brian Adams. Right. Still and, does. Uh, it, when we, we actually told Bruce, we think we need one more song and we're kind of like running out of time in the studio. And he said, well, let me call Mutt Lang. And we kind of just went, you can call Mutt Lang. You know what I mean? We just this crazy. <laughs> and, and this is, yeah. And, and anyways, he called the studio. And he says, in his nice English, polite gentleman, English accent, said, I've got a song for you. But the only way we could get it quickly was he played it into, he held the telephone up in his studio. 
we yeah. recorded a little micro cassette and then we listened to it intensely and we picked out the parts we're supposed to play and we went in the studio and we cut the thing it was pretty pretty magic to be honest with you it was, wow. it was crazy wow. yeah. so you yeah. recreated yeah. the demo that you heard over the phone in the studio basically yeah exactly. we just we learned the song uh, you know and it was just a tiny little cassette thing it didn't sound very big but you could imagine and we learned all the parts and we went in the studio because back then there was no internet right and that's what you had to do you couldn't just send a song like you can send it now so we just had to figure it out on our own and so that was kind of exciting wow that's cool. and of course back then you had the satellite delay on the phones which was even better so <laughs> yeah right yeah um Talk to me just real quick about the impact of video, because for me, I was in Quebec and, and much music comes out and I'm not really hearing a lot of Loverboy on the channels that my parents were listening to. And then much music comes out and it seems as though we've got a steady stream of Honeymoon Suite, Loverboy, Brian, I mean, CanCon just all day long. How impactful was that for you? Because as a fan, that's where I go, oh, I know that band now. And that's how I got to know you through MTV or through much music, I should say. Well, MTV was a big starter. I think they started first of course. when uh, our record company asked us to go to uh, Albany, New York, to the Shrine Auditorium, and we were going to do some filming. Right. That's really all they said. So he said, we're probably going to do it for three days. And so we played about five or six songs. And out of those songs, they sent it to a producer and, and they made them into videos with we didn't even know what they were called back then. Wow. We sent three of these videos to MTV the first week they were open. So they immediately played us, you know, put us on a heavy rotation, which, you know, that's really hard to get. But back then, if you've got a 24 hour music cycle and you don't have enough uh, content, <laughs> that, yeah, that <laughs> yeah. you just play them off. It's, it's all, it made us like completely, you know, how you, you, you're faceless. Well, we definitely weren't faceless anymore. And then shortly thereafter, much music started. And it was the same thing for much music. Um, I think Canada is very proud of the fact that we're Canadian and we're very proud to be Canadian. So that's great. Much music. Fantastic. Yeah, it really was. You said that you were sort of nameless, faceless. Talk to me a little bit about that, because back in that time, there was a lot of stuff going on with pyro and makeup and you got kissed and you've got all kinds of stuff. Loverboy never really did that. You sort of just came out and said, we got songs. Um, why didn't you go to gimmicks? It's true, Ben. You know what? I'm glad you pointed that out. We kind of figured we'd just give them the songs and right. uh, mm. and the energy. And we get the energy back from the crowd. That's kind of still what we do today. Right. We just go on stage and we bang right up, right into it. You know, jump on stage and jump into the kid is hot tonight. Right out of the bat. Everybody just goes, holy shit, that's the kid is hot tonight. You know, right <laughs> up. We're not dicking around. And there's no pyro. There's no fancy, dancey lighting system. It's just basically lover boy playing your songs. And that's kind of what I'm proud of. I really am. Thanks. Well, yeah. and, and I got to say, when I saw you at that time in Santia Santa a couple of years ago, and I've seen you before, it, it's amazing how in 75 minutes you just go, that's a top 10 hit. That's a top 10 hit. Oh, look, they figured it out with another top 10 hit. I'm looking at this. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. All right. How do you look back on your catalog? Are, are you... Are you one of those bands that say, we still haven't written our greatest album, or you just go, you know what? Fuck, we fucking nailed it. I think we nailed it. You know, <laughs> you know I, I really do. There's, there's, there's a point, you know, where you could throw, throw new songs out till the day you die. But for some reason, the magic of the time, the magic of, uh, and, and just the whole what was going on at the time, 
those songs have become part of people's DNA, and it's for real. They, yeah. I mean, they grew, they went to high school with them, or whatever school they went to, and they went to university. You know, they got married to some of these songs. Uh, Almost Paradise was a big song at weddings. Uh, you know, the, the kid is hot tonight. They play stuff like at hockey games. They play stuff at football games. Yeah. Everywhere you go, they got them in sitcoms now. They got them in TV commercials. It's just everything is covered, and it's it's. It's a testament, to, I think, to good songwriting. And I, I said, I try to be humble about that, but it, it is a while back, and I don't think we'll ever have songs as popular as that again. I just think that's just the way it is. That's just the way. Well, you, you, and, and look at working for the weekend. It's not just a song. It's part of the vernacular now where people go, oh, it's Wednesday. I'm working for the weekend. You know, it's, yeah. it's become a cultural thing. You, you, you changed our lexicon, quite frankly. Basically. That's right. Dylan, Friday nights everywhere we go. Friday nights you can hear it at uh, five o'clock. They just hit. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I was on the school bus going, to, I was in grade eight back in like 2007. And then like, you know, Terry and Ted and Kim in the morning on show 97.7, I'd hear it at 740 right after revisionist history. You'd hear that cowbell and all yeah. it, it became a thing. And that was my exposure to it. And I mean, great songs. They just transcend generations. Yeah. All, all hell breaks loose when you hear that cowbell. Yeah. Speaking of that cowbell, where is that cowbell now? Uh, our drummer's got it in his drum bag, and we're going to be pulling it out in another three weeks. Wow. Is it the same? Is it still the same cowbell? Because that should be like under glass, like with a light on top of it, like, you know, on display. <laughs> right beside the red leather pants, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with, a, with a picture of like Albert Bouchard from Blue Oyster Cult going, I got one of those. Um, <laughs> the cowbell crew. <laughs> the cowbell crew. And you know who was one of the first to do the cowbell thing was uh, was uh, Mississippi Queen. Yeah. Mountain. Right. Mountain. Yeah, Mountain. Leslie West. He was a good guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a chance to interview him a couple of times. Unfortunately, he passed away, but he was so, mm. so good. Um, talk to me quickly about this tour. So you've got REO Speedwagon. You've got Sticks. They're flip-flopping sort of the headlining slot. Um, how do you sort of go go about it? Do you, do you sort of think we got to upstage these guys and we're just going to go full tilt? Or you just go, listen, we're just going to go give them half an hour. Then we're going to go back to the, you know, catering and we're just going to relax. Like, are, are you like, you know, out for the attack and you want to win the night? Or are you just like, you know, we'll just do half an hour and we'll go, we'll, go back, we'll go to catering. We'll be good. Let me just tell you what happened last week. My manager calls me and he says, yeah. I just got a call from Live Nations. Mm. He says, this tour is selling out so fast. He says, I've dealt with these bands together many years in a row. Well, this is Live Nations. He says, this is the first time this tour is selling out well in advance. Because the only thing we can think of it is, is that we added Loverboy. And he says, you guys got a lot of fans out there. And we want to take you on the road next year and headline. And I just it was just such a big compliment to me. What people do, at, you know, if you go to most concerts, there's a, a warm-up pack is playing and everybody's out having a beer, getting a T-shirt, taking a leak, walking yep. down slowly, hanging out with their buddies. So the place is kind of half empty. Right. When we went out with Journey a few years ago, the crowds were in, in their seats right at 7 o'clock. And yep. the promoter came up to us and says, we've never seen that either. You know, so there's all kinds of things where, you know, we're kind of changing. Yeah, and, and that, I can testify to that. We went to that journey show in Montreal with my wife, and she's always like, oh, "We'll just show up at eight o'clock, and we'll go see whatever Bon right. Jovi." Forget for that night, she was like, "Can we leave at like five so we can make sure that traffic and yeah, 
My wife doesn't do that for anybody. It's but funny. For I, Lover Boy, she did. I, I forgot oh, about that. that show and you brought that up. I totally do remember doing the same thing. Yep. Yeah, me, cool. me and Kat Spencer, we got free tickets from uh, from the radio station and we walked over because it's a block over and we was like, yep. we need to be there for Lover Boy. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It was a triple a, bill. Yep. That's, that's, that's a big compliment. Thing. You know what? And that makes me happy. And that's that's another reason why I'm happy. So we're going to get up there. They're giving us an hour. We're wow. going to go Play like yeah, nine, ten songs. We're just going to kick some ass and then uh, get in the tour bus and go to the next town. And nice. and we're going to try to do it with as much poise and, and and Canadian spirit as we possibly can. Yeah. Plus, we're going to kick their ass. <laughs> yeah. And and just don't just don't wear a leaf shirt on on stage. That's all I'm asking. But you there do you have go. one yeah. Canadian date uh, in Toronto on August 16th. Yep. No dates in Quebec, so no Montreal, no Quebec City. Is that something that might change? Or do you come back alone? Or, or in fact, I think you're actually doing a date in August at the uh, Strangers in the Night, I believe. Well, they, they were supposed to be doing that gig. I don't know what's going on with that. Are you guys still on the on the it, bill? Yeah, the dates are changing. Well, you know what's happening is some of the some of the people can't operate unless it's a full capacity type situation. Right. And some of the, the provinces are asking for 50 percent capacity or less. Yeah, yeah. Montreal. And, going to be distance and you got to wear a mask and you got to you know wear a diaper I yeah. <laughs> hazmat suit yeah yeah hazmat suits and the antennas and look i don't know it's just crazy times but promoters they can't really do it so what we're trying to do is we're just trying to let this uh this whole virus thing just dissipate and go away and all the shows we're doing with the with the ario and sticks and Loverboy are all uh, outdoor events so yeah I know that there's going to be shows added on because as soon as they see it sell out that fast, a lot of promoters jump in and say, well, we, we'd like a show too. Right. So I could, I could see coming to Montreal or Quebec anywhere and, and playing some Canadian shows as long as they're outside and, and they, you know, and there's no capacity rulings. Right. Yeah. Um, we spoke about loving every minute of it. You worked with uh, Mutt Lang on the song, but on the album, you worked with Tom Allum, who of course was known at that time for working with Judas Priest was that a, a moment where you sort of said to yourself, we need to toughen up our sound. We need to be a little bit more metal. We, you know, cause metal was sort of taking over at that time. Uh, talk to me about the decision to work with Tom and, and what was he like? Because here's another great producer. Well, first off, Tom, one of Tom Allen's uh, uh, magic moments was when we were cutting, I think it was Love and Every Minute of It, in the studio. And he was, it was towards the end of the night and towards the end of the night, he could always, he'd always have a, a little tumbler of scotch going. And he'd, he'd stand, he was a standing producer. He was always standing. Oh, wow. He was, he was tumbling his, his, his scotch because it was late in the night. We we're almost ready to sit back and the band played love and every minute of it perfectly. And he puts the talk back mic on and he goes, change nothing immediately. You know, and that's got to be one of the uh, the coolest statements I think I've ever heard. Change nothing immediately. I mean, he just loved no. it. Uh, we were trying to toughen the sound up. Paul especially wanted to get away from certain things. He wanted to make it a little more guitar oriented. Right. Um, mm. And and so he, he he was. We were trying to find a guy. He was available. Our regular production crew weren't available. Like I was saying earlier. Yeah. Because we 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 were working in Studio B. Studio A had somebody in like Aerosmith or something. I mean, that's how crazy it was. And so we had the, our whole team on the other side. 
So we kind of thought, well, this is kind of crazy. Uh, but that's what we did. And we did a great album. And we had a lot of fun. When you record a song that's written by Mutt Lang and he's not producing it, does he get final cut at the end of the day and say, no, nah, I don't like the mix, redo it? Nope. Never got any final cut. Never demanded it. He was just a gentleman uh, through and through. He sent it to us and just let us have at it. And I think uh, he's probably pretty proud of what we did. Wow. Have you ever spoken to him since the song came out asked? I have not spoken to him. I've, I'm looking for it. You know, a lot of things in my life. I'd like to still do. One of them is to meet Mutt Lang. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Welcome to the club. <laughs> to the club. Um, and, and then I'll start wrapping up on this, but Little Mountain Studio, there there are famous pictures of, you know, Jack Blades with Brian Adams, with Mark LaFrance, and all these people doing these big backing vocals on, on these albums. Yeah. How involved were you in that? And is that something where you're just sort of hanging out and they say, hey, look, Mike's over there. Mike, come on and sing on Dr. Feelgood or come and sing on Living on a Prayer like you did. And is it really like a favor thing or do you get like a session rate for it? <laughs> <laughs> they were all favors. They did it for us. We did it for them. Here's what happens. You get like, let's say seven or eight guys around a microphone. Mm-hmm. You go, whoa, living on a prayer or something like that. Right. Now you record that 10 times. That's 80 voices, right? Wow. Cause you got guys 10 times. And every time it's just a little bit different. So it gives it that big chunky feel like you're in a stadium. Yeah. And I used to do it for them. And they used to do it for me. And sometimes they'd call us down and sometimes we'd just be hanging out. I remember I used to, I looked through the window one, one time through studio A, they had a, a, an entrance window into the little entrance area. And uh, the singer for the cult was decided to make that his vocal room. So I looked to the thing to see if it was okay to come in. And he's just singing away like crazy, you know? And uh, wow, I think it was Bob Rock was producing The Cult. And, right. and that was some of their best music that came out of that studio. I guarantee you that. Yeah, with Mickey Curry on yeah, drums. I mean, come on. Absolutely, man. So, so who's singing on your albums? Because we know Lou Graham's on, on uh, Brian Adams' record. And we know Jack Blades and Brian Adams are on Motley Crue's record. And... So who's on your record? I mean, is Nikki Six or Vince Neil or, or like who? Do you, do you have any? Do you have any clue? Is there any? Secrets? I think we had. We probably had. Uh, a boy, I can't even remember. Mark probably had Mark LaFrance and all the guys in, in the band. And uh, yeah, Mark LaFrance, who's a drummer in Canada, is on all of these recordings. Because he was like, yeah, like, he was the, the the Mountain Studio rat guy, you know. And these guys used to come in and do just do it for nothing, just because we're friends. And we do it right. for them. For us. I'm trying to think who was on our record. Now it goes back a ways, so I'd have to really think it through. Well, but, in the early '80s, when when Brian Adams was doing Reckless and Cuts Like a Knife, he had Lou Graham next door, and Lou Graham came in. So, so I guess around the same time when you were doing Get Lucky and stuff, was Lou around doing stuff for you? Back, I didn't, I didn't see Lou, but. Uh, okay. Yeah, we were pretty intense into, into staying in our room and finishing the project up. That's back when studio time was very, very expensive. It's kind of changed a bit now because everybody's recording everywhere. But right. back in those days, it was like $3,000 a day. So you really wanted to get your stuff done fast. You know, you could go through a lot of money very quickly. Wow. And then you learn what recoupment costs are and you go, what? <laughs> we need to what? sell six million records to pay for the catering? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. Well, and, listen, uh, the big tour kicking off at the end of May. Uh, Grand Rapids, the first date. Uh, 
basically, you're not going to get a better tour than this this summer. It's just a tour of nothing but number one hits, man. Uh, pretty much hitting every city across the U.S. We got the Toronto gig as well at the Budweiser stage. Uh, make sure you go to uh, Ticketmaster.ca to get your tickets for that. Uh, thanks a lot, Mike. This is fantastic. Hopefully, we'll get to see you on the road this summer. An all-new episode of the Mitchell Fun and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream.